Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Welcome to JWT. David Eastman, who runs JWT in North America, is in Cannes while we're here in his building. But thank you, David. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence and Names Not Numbers, for those of you who weren't on day one yesterday. So it's the first day of summer, and here we are with ideas blooming all around us. We're here to discuss the very open-ended question of individuality in a mass age in various guises. Yesterday was largely focusing on creativity in all of its forms. Today is a very mixed economy of creativity and culture and business and politics. I'm going to hand over to our New York chair, Janet Goldsmith, to introduce the first three speakers giving us their bright ideas this morning. Janet's uh, solidity behind us is the rock on which we've built Names Not Numbers New York for this first year. She is a media guru, an expert, television uh, and digital knowledge person is all I can say of Janet and a very nice person as well. So I'm going to hand over to Janet and thank you all for coming. Well, digital knowledge, whatever that is. Gosh, if I had that, I think we'd all be fine. Um, the first session today is called Bright Ideas. We have three very distinguished um, people each going to present an idea um, reflecting a different aspect of individuality in a mass age. Um, and at the very end, then I'm going to bring them all together for questions. So first up, we have Pat Mitchell, who, um, according to no less a source than Newsweek magazine, is one of the 150 women who shake the world. Um, I don't think any of us who know her, and there are so many in this room, it turns out, would disagree. Um, from network correspondent and producer to president and CEO of PBS, um, and to her current position as chief executive, president and chief executive of the Paley Center, um, Pat's career is characterized by her focus on media as a powerful force for social change. Her work's been recognized with no less than 44 Emmy Awards, five Peabody's, and two Academy Award nominations. Um, she's received so many honors, I won't go into it, and sits on the boards of organizations as diverse as V-Day, um, which is um, committed to ending violence against women, Human, Human Rights Watch, the Sundance Institute, and AOL. So quite diverse, I think. Thanks, Janet. I don't know about uh, most of you, but I could have used a GPS this morning in finding this building. And I kept trying to <clears throat> access the one of my BlackBerry with absolutely no results. So um, it seems odd that I would then find myself talking about new media technologies. But I, I have been thinking a lot lately about social media, uh, the platforms and technologies in particular, and how well-suited they seem to be to women. And in particular, I want to share some of what I've witnessed around the world and some of the work that I'm involved in. But clearly, I think we would all agree that social media seems particularly well-suited to the natural inclinations and interests of women. We are natural communicators. We naturally are engaged in building community. We like to be connected to our friends. 
And all of those ways, it seems that social media technologies from Facebook to Twitter to Tumble to uh, SMS feeds to whatever it is that keeps us connected, helps us stay uh, and helps us share our stories uh, is the technology that women are attracted to. And the numbers sort of bear this out. Uh, if you look at the population of the most engaged users of social media, there are more women than men in the growing number of new users, but it's really not the numbers, as this conference focuses on, that interest us. It's really the impact. And there I look, as many of you have, to the biggest and boldest statement about women in social media, and that is to look to Arab Spring. Uh, the uprisings that began first in Iran, and then, of course, most significantly and recently in Egypt and Yemen. The presence of women on the front lines of those revolutions has been noted, but there's a behind-the-scenes story that I found particularly interesting. One of the most prominent of the bloggers, the one who sent out the messages and encouraging and engaging people early on and, and telling them when and where together, no one knew until that day in Tahrir Square that that blogger, that person tweeting messages, was a woman. There is something genderless about social media. If you choose to hide your gender and identity, you can do so. And in cultures like Egypt, where women weren't encouraged to take such a role in revolutionary activity, this gave women a chance to develop a voice inside the revolutionary movement and then to be accepted as a presence in the actual revolution once it started that might have been denied to them other, under other circumstances. So social media can be a place for a lack of gender bias, at least for a while. There's also the safety of communicating through social media technologies uh, and sharing the kinds of stories on a personal level, woman to woman, that uh, cannot be done for fear of safety or, or political ramifications in the Congo, for example where a woman is raped every seven minutes, according to the latest UN report about the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's a Congo story project that started first on Facebook and has now been extended to other social media technologies in which women are encouraged to record their personal stories in, a, in this way, and then the stories are shared in a community of survivors, so that not only are the women hearing each other's stories, learning from each other, but they are in sharing their pain on a personal and collective basis, often turning their pain into power. And not so insignificantly, as these stories are recorded in this way digitally, they will become evidence if, in fact, that conflict ever ends and there is a truth and reconciliation trial. Must give a nod to Google in this case, too, because not only have they put cell phones in the hands of 
women survivors who wouldn't have had them, but they have also gone into the hospitals and the clinics and begun digitizing the stories and the testimonies that doctors and nurses are giving about the rape victims who come there so that there will be some accountability at some point for the horrific uh, violence against women and girls in that country. Also there, where the women still must go out in the woods and gather food and, and wood, there's a new alert system on some of these cell phones that's being tested. And along with the GPS system, which literally has red notes where there are gorillas, the rebel gorillas, uh, in, in the area, and women know not to go there, but there's also an alert system on the phone that allows them to alert each other those who have cell phones. So in some ways, this social media technology through text and, and GPS and alert systems is also giving women an additional level of safety. I've also seen in some of the other most remote villages of other African countries that when there is wireless technology, there is a computer, but more significantly a, a, a phone in a village, it often goes to the woman. Women are good at communicating, and most of them not only take this opportunity to be the sort of primary storyteller of the village, controlling and, and uh, negotiating the, the handling of one-on-one -on -one uh, communications, but many of these women are turning them into micro-businesses, either micro-lending through the mobile phone or, in fact, charging other people in the village for texting and phone calls. So we've also seen a direct link between the technology that comes from a mobile phone and economic empowerment. But there's still a gender gap and one that must be noted, 300, fewer, 300 million fewer women have mobile phone technology than men. You may have noticed that the uh, U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, recently put an initiative into place joining forces with the mobile industry saying we must change this because we have seen so many examples of the transformational power of mobile technology and social media platforms when women have them in their hands. So they have begun a three-year distribution program which will distribute another 150 million phones to women. So that encourages us all as well. But not to lose the thought of media and women all together, I just would like to note that old media is still playing a very significant role for women in developing countries, in particular radio. In Kenya, in Masailand, where the community radio licenses were bought by the women with the $100 that they saved, they've created a network of information maternal health rate deaths are going down, more voter registration among women, the significant social changes that are happening in these communities, cultural conversations finally about FGM, FGM, female genital mutilation, and the need to end it. These kinds of conversations are starting in old media with the radio transport of the messages and information that can and often is life-changing, and then extending to the social media conversations that can go on on the one-on-one -on -one basis among women. In this country and in the Western world, we are more focused on the ways in which we use social media both to stay connected to our families and to try and get our 
children and grandchildren to actually have a conversation with us when it's so much more interesting to have the one they're having on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, we've seen one other significant shift due to social media, and that has to do with the power women have as consumers. I mean, we do control 85% of the, of the consumer purse. So more and more companies are building up around the fact that women trust other women, their friends, and men often trust women and their families as well for the best and most experienced and expert guide uh, to their consumer purchases. So essentially now, all media and in particular social media has been embraced by an entire generation of women who no longer have to deal with the hierarchies of authority and gatekeepers that characterizes old media, that can use these new media technologies to break through gender bias, misogynist cultures, cultural traditions that hold women back, and that in many ways are giving them a new kind of pure and potent courage. So perhaps Eric Schmidt, who made this statement five years ago at the World Economic Forum, in this, as he held up the mobile phone, is the transformational power of the world, and in particular, if it's in the hands of women, I'd just like to say, I second that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, next up, we have um, Aditya Devsud, who is the founder of the Center for Knowledge Studies. Um, he's a leading expert on innovation, um, which I suppose he's going to tell us all what we need to know about that. Um, the he's the founder of the Center for Knowledge Studies, which uses ethnography, design, thinking, and user experience modeling to make new things possible for governments, large corporations, and also for young startups. He's a former Fulbright scholar with two doctorates from the University of Chicago, and is currently writing a book on India's innovation path. But I think he's actually taking us back a bit in time to start his talk today. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm going to need to step back a bit, way back to this slide, um, which is a bust I made a couple of months ago at uh, my in-law's farm. This man has been taking over my mind uh, to some extent. Uh, this is a bust of... Muhammad bin Tughlaq, who was the Sultan of Hindustan in about uh, the 1300s, the early 1300s. So about 1327, he was staring out of a turret window in his fortress. And um, hmm. he no longer seems to have liked what he was seeing. The city and its people they seem to reek of a kind of parochialism of the metropolis. They could not see what he had seen. They did not recognize that the rest of India lay to the south. These territories that he just conquered before he became the Sultan were so far deep that they didn't, hadn't even heard of these parts of the country. Um, all of the riches and um, the, the power that, that stood between him and his future lay outside of this city. So what he decided to do in 1327 was announce the moving of the capital uh, of the city. So he moves the city of Delhi basically from, um, from Delhi to 
a place called Devagiri, which is a military camp um, about 100 or so kilometers inland from Bombay. And he orders everybody to move. Um, at first, nothing happens. And finally, he basically force marches the, the entire city, uh, his subordinate officers, uh, their retinues, their servants, the, all the artisans, the people that work for them, uh, to basically move entirely to this uh, new encampment of Devagiri. Uh, just, just about the time that everybody is relocated, uh, thousands have already died in the, trans, uh, in the transfer. Uh, water runs out to the city. There's rebellion in other parts of the land. He's on a horse running out to different parts of the country, different parts of the realm, quelling revolts. So he himself is never actually in uh, the fortress city of Dalatabad. Uh, years later, uh, he finally relents, and those who've survived uh, the relocation are allowed to move back to Delhi, where, in fact, he lives out the rest of his uh, reign. So this kind of uh, maniacal idea about what one can do with uh, one, one's society, the idea that society is an object of design, that it can be trans transformed and changed at whim, that this is one of the things that Tughlaq is remembered for. But that's not all. Um, there is a bunch of other things that he did, uh, which in many ways I find even more captivating. For one thing, he, he introduced um, a new kind of coinage, which was a mixture of um, copper and silver, uh, what is called bilon. Uh, and it's, a, it's an alloy that's shiny, a bronze-like kind of gold sheen that it has, uh, but, it, but you can't assay its value. So he introduced this token currency um, at a time when nothing of the kind had been attempted outside of China, and, and maybe the Mongols had experimented with it as well. And in so doing, he takes upon the seal of the sultan, right, the power of um, ascertaining value throughout the empire. And this is something that actually causes even greater instability in his wide realms, in that there are revolts, there are, um, uh, there's all kinds of counterfeiting going on in different parts of the um, uh, different realms, uh, districts and provinces. And finally, this entire experiment is deemed a kind of a failure, and he's forced to recall the Bilon currency and issue, um, again, silver and gold coinage. And then, finally, a series of innovations that had to do with agriculture. So, progressive taxation rate. If you had uh, superior lands, better irrigated, then you'll pay more tax. Um, uh, he organized grain convoys that moved grain all around from hinterlands into military encampments. Uh, he, uh, to urban centers. Uh, so, uh, you know, the uh, yeah, state farms and agricultural, um, uh, direct agricultural administration as well. So these, these three kind of innovations, uh, people haven't known what to really, how to consider them or what to, how, how to um, evaluate them. Uh, in many ways, they're considered harebrained schemes or the foibles of Muhammad bin Tughlaq, but these ideas in some ways make sense as well. Uh, so Boeing and Airbus, for instance, have chosen central India for their maintenance and repair operations. Uh, when India became independent in 1947, many people again suggested that maybe uh, 
the, the capital should be relocated to a place more central within India. Uh, the, the value of these ideas um, seems to be totally disconnected from the way in which he went about implementing them. And so in, in my sense is that um, he represents a, a, a kind of technocratic innovator who, whose, whose innovative style uh, involves the transformation or the use of state power to transform society. And this is a model you know, that I think we see again and again in the last 600 or 700 years. So Lord Dalhousie, uh, the Governor General of India, uh, brought to India trains, um, again, irrigation canals, the telegraph, new kinds of civil and bureaucratic administration, and those kinds of transformations are rewarded by the revolt of 1857, the minute he leaves town. Um, Nehru brought um, public sector administration, the nationalization of all kinds of extractive industries, uh, the commanding heights of the public sector. Um, more reprehensibly, uh, Sanjay Gandhi brought us um, forced sterilization, um, and then, interestingly, Sam Petroda, uh, new kinds of um, telecommunications, uh, new ways for people to connect in rural areas, and most recently, um, a powerful idea about universal identity through biometrics uh, that um, Nandan Nilekini is working on. So my own view is I'm agnostic to the ideas and their value, but I'm, I'm really interested in the style of innovation that seems to go back all the way to Mohammed bin Tughlaq. Now, there's another innovation style that in a way India is more famous for. And this is what I would call the sociocentric style. And this seems to involve innovation not as a transitive verb, as in, I will innovate you, but as a reflexive verb. That innovation is something that has to be done to oneself in order that we can all enter into a new kind of social relationship with each other. And these kinds of innovators have often been considered, well, spiritual, mystical, and religious leaders, um, social reformers, um, and then, you know, yes, Gandhi is the most widely known and perhaps most successful example of this kind, uh, but more recently they've given rise to kinds of social businesses that we now recognize, you know, as microfinance and other kinds of self-help groups and even mobile networks and mobile-enabled uh, communities. Now, sociocentric innovation can also have a technical dimension, um, but I think the approach to technology is, is, is very different, and I think quite compelling and interesting. Um, that is, technology is evaluated for the kinds of societal and moral effects that it can have, uh, both on the self and in one's, in, it, in one's relations with other people. If this is a kind of diagram of sociocentric innovation overlaid with this kind of experience of top-down innovation, this somewhat not pretty state of affairs is a way, I think, to describe what contemporary India looks like. A combination of peer-to-peer -peer and social networks coupled with a state administration and allied institutions that are working completely top-down. So, is there a way to change that? Um, so, really sketchy, but I think there might be. And I think 
this might be that path. That is a way to really understand what is going on in society, in rural areas, among lower-income consumers and users of technology that ensures that the innovations that we come out with are contextual and well-grounded. So that would be step one. Step two, maybe, is the Tughlaq phase, where you really do have to, through the force of will, through a kind of vector of design, suggest a number of different things, many of which will likely fail. And then step three, a, a way of maybe ensuring that some of those ideas might actually be successful, ensuring that they connect with people or that they are allowed to connect with people. So that's, I think, the bright idea that I'd like to share with you, uh, some imagery about the ways in which we do these things. Thank you, Ditya. Um, and finally, our, our third bright idea today is Chrissy Philolathis, and I have pronounced that correctly. I did have lessons earlier today. Um, Chrissy is Head of Digital Strategy and Marketing and the Chief Digital Officer for RED, which I'm sure many of you know. She was a founding member of eSpotting, the company that pioneered search marketing in Europe um, and was valued eventually at $200 million when it later merged with Find What. Um, Chrissy joined RED, which was created by Bono and Bobby Shriver to engage business and consumer power to help eliminate AIDS in Africa in 2009. Um, to date, RED has raised $170 million and has helped 7.5 million people um, through global fund finance grants that RED supports. Chrissy. So this month, AIDS turns 30. It's been 30 years since the first diagnosis of AIDS in the U.S., and today, 33 million people are living with HIV around the world, and 25 million people have unfortunately already passed away from this disease. Of those 33 million people living with HIV, only 6 million have access to the life-saving medicine that's needed. And according to the World Health Organization, AIDS kills more women between the ages of 15 to 44 around the world than cancer or heart disease which is a pretty shocking fact. But we're here at names, not numbers, so let's talk about the names, and actually just one number, 2015. This is Doris, who's HIV positive, and this is Michael, her son, who was born without HIV. And that's because with access to treatment, it is possible to stop the transmission of HIV from mother to child. Medicine that can be administered during labor can reduce the risk of, mothers, of a mother transmitting the virus to her child from 40% to less than 1%. And last year, some incredible news was actually announced. And that is that with increased levels of funding and support, we can virtually eliminate the transmission of HIV from mother to child by 2015. Today, just over half of all pregnant women who need the treatment receive it. By 2015, which is just four years away, the goal is to reach 90% of women. So this presentation, or bright idea, is entitled Red in 140 Characters. And that's because I'm the Chief Digital Officer at Red and therefore have trained my brain to, to truncate sentences. And today I'll be sharing with you Red's goal in 140 characters, our model in 140 characters, and our digital strategy in 140 characters. So first up, Red's goal. 
to help make the possibility of an AIDS-free generation born in 2050 a reality. Now, our goal may only take, have taken 80 characters to write, but it is a goal that will not be achieved by Red alone. Red is just one of the organisations, alongside a number of others, including the Global Fund, One, Chai and PEPFAR, that is working towards this goal. The role Red plays in this is to facilitate consumer and private sector participation. Red partners with some of the world's most iconic companies, such as Nike, Starbucks, Apple, Converse, Shazam, to create product red items. And when people choose to buy product red, for example, the Apple red iPod Nano, which costs exactly the same as the other Nanos, Apple gives $10 to help fight AIDS. So it's consumer choice that triggers the contribution the brand makes towards the cause. And red partners typically contribute up to 50% of profits from the sale of product red items to the global fund. So in less than 140 characters, the red model is bringing consumers and brands together to help fight AIDS. And since Bono and Bobby Shriver launched Red in 2006, Red has generated more than $117 million for the Global Fund, which is the recipient of Red monies. And today, Red is the largest private sector contributor to the Global Fund. Now, 100% of that money goes directly to work on the ground in Africa. Neither Red nor the Global Fund take any overhead. And Global Fund programs that Red supports have impacted over 7 million lives such as Mozzalisi, who, with the help of two antiretroviral pills that cost just 40 cents a day, has undergone a remarkable transformation in just 90 days. And this transformation is, is incredible. It's called the Lazarus Effect. So one of my tasks at RED is to try and turn our, our 2.8 million strong digital audience from just a number to using social media to create real change. So I'd like to leave you with Red's digital strategy in 140 characters, and this time we have used all the characters. Participation, not promotion. Dialogue, not monologue. Empowering, not excluding. Inspiring, not forcing. Innovating, not following. It's this approach that guides how we interact with our social media audience. We see each and every one as a name, not a number a very important name that can help the possibility of an AIDS-free generation born in 20, 2015 become a reality. Thank you. Right, I'm just going to um, ask a few questions of um, each of the panel and then I think one or two questions of them collectively before I open it up to the audience. Um, for questions. I would, I have been asked to remind you that um, this is going to be a podcast, so any remarks, bear that in mind for any remarks you might want to make. Um, my first question actually is for Pat. Um, listening to the stories that you told, the amazing stories of the millions of w women, um, and both in old and new, and new media, but really using new technology and separately using old media, I'm just wondering... Um, about the possibilities of bringing all that influence to bear, actually, on the old media companies. And it, when, when you were speaking, it struck me 
reminded me, and I don't know how many people in the audience remember the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. Um, for those of you who, who may remember, for those of you who don't remember, um, basically the, the kind of endless um, stalemate in the Northern Ireland peace process, and eventually it was the women, or at least a great big influence was the women who said, we've had enough, we're tired of all our children being killed. Across the sectarian divide, um, the women got together and said, this is enough, we've had enough, we're going, we're taking this to all the politicians. And the media actually at that point came in and covered these women's outrage. And they really did make a big change and have a big influence. And I'm wondering, Pat, really how your story is and how that might, that might come together and if you're, if you're feeling positive, hopeful. Any examples of that? I, I'm smiling, Janet, because I was just on the phone this morning with women in Northern Ireland. No. It's so amazing <laughs> that you're saying this to me. <clears throat> because I was one of those uh, journalists who was there uh, in the uh, late, um, in the mid to late 80s during the Troubles to document exactly that story. And what it, I, you're completely right in that it was the women of Northern Ireland from both sides who began to communicate with each other surreptitiously, privately, and, it, and with great danger to themselves and family, and then began to meet secretly and privately, and they formed the coalitions that ended the conflict. The exact same thing happened uh, in Israel and what was then the occupied territories, where the women again broke the law, got together, negotiated their own peace settlement, regrettably did not bring uh, peace to that region, and in El Salvador, the same thing with a the conflict there where women on the front lines used, again, the media that was available yeah. to them, which was often one-to-one -one, uh, communication, uh, to, to get past their differences. So in, in the many places in the world today, and I just think particularly of Congo because I've spent so much time there recently, that if that conflict ever ends, it will be, I believe, because media in all of its forms, has begun to hold not only the Congolese government, but all of the other governments who are intertwined in that conflict to a different accountability standard. But more significantly, perhaps, it has, it has made more of us in the Western world aware of what's going on there. And it took such bravery for these rape victims to begin to come forward and literally record their stories. Yeah. But if they don't do that and share them with one another, sometimes they can't do it face-to-face. -face. They literally do prefer doing it through messaging or on their Facebook pages that have been set up for some of them or in private community centers. That will be the testimony that ultimately will hold uh, the people accountable for this violence. Well, I hope old media steps up as well, is what I can say. Um, Aditya, um, I actually just have a slightly cheeky question for you, which is what do you think Gandhi would have made of the technological development in India today and the distribution of wealth, how the, how the wealth is being distributed um, around that, that as a result of that revolution? Yeah, well, <laughs> we're all glad that he wasn't. He didn't live to see much of that. Um, he didn't live to see either no. Nehruvian India or Manmohan Singh's India. Um, what do you I think, think he would have you know, made notwithstanding it? his status as the father of the nation upon martyrdom, etc., he represents just a dimension, or, or one dimension, and that too, uh, one that, rep uh, that came to a particular kind of collective consciousness because of his genius, but yeah. not necessarily um, you know, uh, 
a continuous reality or a continuous um, presence within India. So you talked of him when we were speaking before of a, as a designer, and I just wondered about you know given how far things have come and how they've expanded, and um, do you think he would have he would have played an active part, or do you think? Um, so there are many things that you know we're beholden to him for. Uh, the preservation mm -hmm. of India's handicraft industries, you know, a place called Fab India, which is kind of like India's Mari Mecco or a kind of national uh, textile and, and accessories store. Um, so, so there are, the Khadi brand is nurtured by, yeah. um, by the government of India. Um, so these are kind of icons and, in a way, elements of Gandhi's legacy. But if you look at the operations of India's state, Not the logic relevant. of India's industry, that's not... Uh, I, I wanted to mention another thing, though, that came to me later on. Um, Tata Salt is India's largest salt manufacturer and producer. Right? So, in a way, even Tata Salt is beholden to Gandhi's salt march. Uh, the, the branding and uh, uh, professionalization of salt manufacturing. Um, and Chrissy, I want to know, really, uh, uh, it's intriguing, and you've got all these brands to sign up, and they're all major brands, and they're all, you know, multinational corporations who have to make kind of huge, huge profits. What's in it for them? Well, the, when Red was set up, it was to provide a sustainable and scalable flow of money to the global fund, and it was felt that the way to do that was to actually align with businesses and create a situation where it was a win for businesses, a win for consumers, because there's price parity. So it's to provide this win situation for all. So it is a win for businesses, it is a win for consumers, because you know the choice they're making, they're getting a great product and it's doing good in the world. And ultimately it's a win for, for, um, for those that, that are living with HIV and AIDS in Africa. Presumably your stakeholders, effectively, are the members of the public who contribute and... and um you know, who come together, the individuals in many masses who actually come together to raise all this money. How do you account to them? How do you report sure. back to them and ensure that they keep committed sure. to you? Well, I'd actually say that our ultimate stakeholders are those living with HIV because ultimately that's where, you know, even if you're looking at it from pure economic terms, that's where the money's going to. Um, but in terms of consumer participation, you know, what we, what we hope is by partnering with the, with the world's most iconic products and offering a diverse product range, when somebody buys one red product, that they'll be, they, they will then want to purchase other red products. So our task is to keep finding many different ways that people can be red. <laughs> okay. Um, bizarrely, if you look, you know, just at the titles of, of each of the um, bright ideas, um, they're so disparate, but actually what comes through in all of them is the, is the collective influence, I suppose, um, that masses of individuals can have in the case of Tugluk um, saying, sorry, that's not going to work, even though his ideas seemingly were fantastic. Um, you know, the women in India and the, the people raising money from, from AIDS. But what I'm wondering, um, all of this is happening, and it's all happening to come and influence pe people in positions of power, but ultimately, where is there a bit of a tension between you know, the politicians making the decisions um, and the masses of people? Or even if we're looking now at foundations, if we're looking at um, you know, funds, if we're looking at people like Buffett and Gates and Bono, um, who have all, each in their own ways, made a ton of money. And actually, now that they've made a ton of money, they're in the position that governments perhaps used to be in to say, this is what we're going to do. And you know, 
let's bring the masses in to help us support our goals. How, how do we, and is there an opportunity, and is this leading us to, um, with social media, the opportunity to say, actually, maybe it's time that the masses of individuals um, can set the goals? Is there really, you know, is this actually really changing things, or is it just different people controlling? Um, sorry, this is going to be really clumsy, but <laughs> this reflects my preliminary thinking on this. But that, you know, crowdsourcing of innovation, for instance, is something that a lot of our clients are trying to do. Uh, sorry, I'm going to take this away from you. <laughs> uh, okay. We have a TV wow. producer in the audience. That's, okay, <laughs> thank you Very much. Cheers. Um, so there is an idea out there that one can crowdsource a, a bunch of bright ideas, for instance, and that that can take the place of a research and uh, design function within an organization, or that uh, one can have, you know, headless revolutions. And while we're trying to understand exactly what's, what's going on there, that can maybe work spontaneously for a while. It seems to me that there is the need for leadership, and that the nature of that leadership is one which is, uh, which maybe understands how social media works and can be relatively light, nimble, and uh, reflexive and, and reacting to um, the kinds of trends and uh, directions that that the that, that the crowd is maybe trending. All of the changes that you referenced, Janet, seem to me to be based in the fundamental power shift. Um, that has happened in media in the last 10 years and that, you know, the, the power and control of what we see, how we see it, and when we see it has shifted from the companies to the consumers. So that, that's a fundamental shift that will change everything about the way we consume information and the way that we behave as individuals as well as collectively. Um, and then that leads to a different kind of accountability yeah. as well. It, it's held at, a, at an entirely different level. And is that, do you, do you see that um, as being at a completely different pace in the um, more developed countries as opposed to the less developed countries? Well, yes, of course, because there is less connectivity and yeah. less, uh, you know, less of the devices that give one the power of access and opportunity in the hands of people in the developing countries. But, of course, the, the mobile phone and, and the take-up of the mobile phone technology yeah. in India and other places like that are so transformative. And, in fact, way ahead in some other uh, countries in, in the use for social causes, um, that we may in just the, leapfrog in the West. Yes, yeah. right. They're yeah. leapfrogging yeah. in many cases. And just to add to that, the importance of mobile technology, especially in the developing world. The, I mean, the, the mobile phone is being used in such innovative ways where you are actually bypassing certain industries and infrastructures. And I think one of the best examples of that is a company called M-Pesa that is basically using mobile phone technology to bypass the need for banks and to allow for money transfers. So you could have um, somebody in one village and they go to the Mpesa agent that could be a local grocer's and uh, they want to send money to, let's say, their sister who's in another village and, th and that money is paid to that local agent who's an Mpesa agent. A text message is then sent and then that person's sister can go to their local Mpesa agent in their community and pick up that money. So I think that the way that mobile technology is being used to affect social change and to affect actual development is phenomenal. 
I, I want to add one more thing to the other point you made, which is related, and that is the shift also of the control of money. Mm -hmm. And where we have, uh, particularly in the developing world, been dependent upon aid and dependent upon government aid in particular, you're, you're right to note that so much of the money and so much of the funding is now coming from individuals with yeah. great wealth. And that, of course, is shifting the whole landscape of development, again, putting control in different places. Yeah. Hopefully good places. Yes. Hopefully. Um, I think I'm being waved, but I think we might have time for just like one or two questions from the audience, if we have any burning questions. Uh, this is really more of a comment, I think, but um, whereas what Pat said about power shifting to the uh, consumer is absolutely right, it's also absolutely wrong. And certainly there are um, corporations and extremely wealthy individuals who are doing an enormous amount of good in the world. However, there are far too few doing far too little. Um, and here we are in New York in this seat of wealth and power. And um, the United States, as are many other countries, are descending into third world status. And there are so many people, people like me, who have always tried to be one of the good guys, who give here and give there, and it's Amnesty International one, one day and the World Wildlife Federation another, whatever. Um, and many of us can no longer do that. We're tanked out. We have unemployed children. We have grandchildren who need new shoes every three months and new braces. And the power shift is not happening nearly far and fast enough. So that's... That's just a personal rant. Thank you. <laughs> we like ranters, actually. <laughs> it's individuality. Um, any other rants? This is um, for Pat um, and for kind of both of you, too. I was wondering if you think there's a drawback to the anonymity that comes when women share their stories um, through SMS or through, you know, email. It's on the one hand, welcoming, because they have a freedom. On the other hand, you do lose a human connectivity. Um, and I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of talk about how the social fabric has been lost a little bit as people share their stories in such an anonymous way. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. On a very personal level, I spent a lot of time trying to get my children to talk to me over dinner so that we might have a one-on-one -on -one conversation instead of the conversation they're having with someone on Facebook or Twitter. And, and I do think that there's a danger to that, to starting to live in a world in which you can't assume another identity, as we discussed earlier, and, and that's valuable to the women who need to assume a genderless uh, identity for, for their own, you know, personal safety. But on the other hand, in situations where the political pressures are so intense and where it's impossible to go public uh, with the story of violence or conflict, the anonymity of being able to share your story through social media or whatever has, has given not only great freedom, but I, as I said earlier, I think will provide really critical testimony to what has happened. Um, but there's no question that we, I think, 
in particular the generation that's come up with social media has are not as aware as I personally would like them to be sometime of the dangers that exist in the kind of uh, sharing that you may think is anonymous but you know may not perhaps be some but, recent examples <laughs> yes as some recent examples show absolutely <laughs> but then on the other hand don't you like holding people like that accountable no personal <laughs> references intended <laughs> Any, re any resemblance to people living or dead was purely accidental. With funny names. <laughs> okay, um, it just remains for me to thank the panel. Thank you very much.